Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. You guys can take a seat. What a line. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. We'll start a new sermon series, uh, and, it's, and it's focusing on who we are in Christ as a family, this, this family relationship that we have been brought into by our faith. And we'll be spending the next three weeks looking specifically at our identity as uh, a family, a family, being part of the family of God. Now, one of the biggest dangers that Christians face, and this is especially true for newer Christians, is this. There's a, a disproportionate focus on what I need to do at the cost of forgetting what God has done for me. That is, if we become so narrow just on focusing on what does it mean for me to be obedient? What does it mean for me to live life with God? What does it mean? How should I act? How should I behave? How should I treat one another who are part of this family? If we look to that and in the process skip or neglect or avoid what God has done for us, then we're going to be in trouble because we're going to have a direction to go, but we won't have power to go in that direction. And we can summarize this, that is, what we do flows from what God has done for, for us. Or another way of putting it is this, what we do flows from who we are, from what God has made us. I'll put it one other way. Our activity as family is determined by our identity in God. And identity today is a big question in our culture. Ah, there's so many different answers given to the question, what determines who I am? What determines my identity? Identity. In many traditional honor cultures, your identity is based on your relationship to the family or to your tribe or clan or to your, your nation. That is, they determine who you really are. Your, your identity is bound up in what they say you are. Uh, as, as time has gone on, there's been other answers provided. Sigmund Freud said that who you really are, are is just the sum of your inner subconscious desires, your animal desires. That's the real you. Others have come along, and like Karl Marx, he says, no, your identity is based on your social class, your social, social economic standing. You're, 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 there's levels, there's hierarchies, and who you are is determined by where you're at in that hierarchy. Uh, modern day, uh, our understanding is that you so often hear this, that who you are is based on what you're really passionate about. You look to yourself, your individual self-expression, that is your real identity. And whatever your passion is, whatever your, your desire is, whatever, whatever feels true to you, that is who you truly are. And even today, uh, one of the more recent developments on this question of identity has come from what's called the postmodern movements. And essentially, they, they can summarize a person's identity by their race, gender, 
class, weight, those things, the combination, the intersection of all those things determines who you are. And, and as Christians, we have to see that those are all false identities. That is, if we are tempted to embrace one of those identities, we are going to miss out. And the Christian conception of who we are, our Christian identity, gives us resources that takes us beyond any of those other identities that vie for our heart and attention. The Bible presents a completely different basis for our identity. And it doesn't look out to society or to others and say, okay, what do you guys say that I am? But it neither says, I need to look inside myself to see who I really am. No, the Bible says our identity comes from God. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with this question and answer to kind of summarize this identity that we have. And here's the question. It's asked, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our fundamental identity that we belong to God. That is shapes who we are. That is something that uh, isn't determined by those around us, but isn't up for debate in our own hearts either. It comes from God and we belong to God. This belonging is our comfort. It's our, it's our peace. And what does it mean in that case, to belong to God. What does that mean to belong to him? And the Bible describes this belonging in so many different and rich ways. But today I want us to look at one particular expression, one way that the Bible describes our belonging to God. And it's through this biblical concept of adoption, this idea that we belong to God in the sense that we have been adopted by him. We have been adopted into his family. We've been adopted uh, with him being our father. And this is such a, a weighty truth in the Christian identity. And we're going to look at just three passages this morning that deal with this topic of identity as being adopted by God. Now, the interesting thing is, even though adoption is such a big theme in the New Testament, uh, it only occurs in these three places in Scripture. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, and uh, sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And in, in these three places, you have all the occurrence of the word adoption. And so we're going to look through that. And here's my argument for you this morning. Here's my, what I want you to consider. It's this. Your ability to love God your ability to love one another, your ability to fight sin, your ability to pursue holiness, your ability to be generous, it's all tied up in your ability to see yourself as belonging to God through this adoption that has been made possible to you. That is, the more you see yourself, you view yourself as, I am adopted by God, the more power you are going to have, the more clarity you're going to have to be able to love one another, to love God, fight sin, and so forth. As When we see our adoption, that changes us. If that is our identity, if that's the identity that we put our hope into, then that's going to transform us and be able to do all that God has called us to do. Our activity is determined by our identity. And so, this is going to be slightly frustrating, but I want us to have a big picture view of our adoption here this morning. And so I want to highlight from Scripture 30 ways 
the, our adoption changes us, the, the facts of our adoption. Now, in your bulletin, uh, we were supposed to have the outline for those 30 points, but uh, something happened and not on your bulletins, though it does say Pastor Wallace, uh, Walter Colas on your bulletin. So I'm afraid uh, there's going to be maybe some congregation somewhere that's going to get a bulletin with 30 points on it, and they see Walter preaching, and they think, man, we're going to be here for a few hours. So we'll, we'll do our best, but you guys can go ahead and start by turning opening your Bibles and turning to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone in the back will come by with a Bible if you do need one. But we're, we'll start off in Galatians chapter 4. And again, this is going to be a big picture. There's so much richness, so much depth in this conception of our adoption. We're not going to be able to tease out every single thing that's related to it. But what I want to do is give you this big picture view, and I want to kind of give you a sampling, right? If you go into like uh, a, a restaurant that has the buffet, uh, you, maybe there's a lot of good things there, but this time we're going to sample a little bit of everything so that later you can go back and dive deep into one of these dishes that we're about to encounter. So first thing that our adoption tells us. First, our adoption assumes our outsider beginnings. Our adoption assumes our outsider beginnings. So adoption, just by definition, assumes that the child was not originally part of the family, that, that the, the father-child relationship was not always there. Adoption uh, implies some kind of process. And so the question is, okay, then where, who do we belong to before we belonged to God? And Galatians 4.8 uh, describes our, our status, and it shows this, that we once belonged to another. We once belonged to another. So Galatians 4.8 says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And, and Paul's writing to the Galatians, and, and they had practiced uh, idolatry before the gospel came into uh, their life. And so what Paul's saying is that before we came to be adopted, we actually belonged, we, not, not as children, but as servants, as slaves to the idols in our life. Ephesians 2 talks about this in more regard. Paul writes, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, just, just from these passages, we see that we belong to idols. We belong to what Paul describes as the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan, and that we were not children of God, but children of wrath. This is our original state before the grace of God came in. And now some people will say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I, I've been a Christian, but... You know, before I became a Christian, I wasn't like a devil worshiper. I wasn't, I wasn't a follower of Satan. You know, that seems a little extreme, right? Well, here's the truth. Satan is just as fine with a man who is distracted with the cares of this world as he is with a man who's sacrificing goats in his living room. The two don't matter that much because both of those people are still not giving God the glory in their life. They're still not recognizing and orientating their entire worldview 
around God. They don't look to God for their salvation, for, for righteousness. Both men are totally either distracted or straight up, you know, doing uh, demonic practices. Both of them are still neglecting the glory that God deserves in their life. And so this, this Paul saying, no matter if you were a really good person or you were literally worshiping idols and false gods and even demons, it doesn't matter. You were still alienated from God. You were still separated from him. You were as good as dead and you deserved it. And, and, and not only that, but Galatians chapter 1 shows this, this other point. Our adoption reminds us that we once lived under the law, that we lived under, under the law. So Galatians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul writes this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul describes us as slaves bound under the law's authority. This is God's commandment saying, here's how humanity should live. Here's how we should behave. Here's how we should act. Here's how we should think. Here's how we should do. And Paul says, as long as that is the only guide in your life, the, the law of God, then we were enslaved. We were bound. And Paul uses this imagery of the law kind of being like a, a harsh taskmaster, a harsh tutor, someone who watches over us, but anytime we go wrong, there is reper repercussions for our disobedience. And so what, what Paul's saying is that if you're still operating under the law, then you are still belonging to this law. You are still enslaved and you're not yet recognized as a son of God. And here's, here's what the, the point of this is. As long as we try to get into right relationship with God, as long as we try to get God's approval, his favor, his blessing through our mere obedience, it will not work. The law tightens its hold on us. And, and so here's this. Some of you guys say, okay, you know, I know I'm not great, but, uh, you know, I, I think I can measure up to what God requires me to do. And my, my experience in that is that you haven't tried to obey the law well enough. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Newton's third law, it states that for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. And it's the same thing is true when we try to obey. Every time we, we get more serious about obeying and say, okay, I can, I can do what God calls me to do and I can measure up to what he wants me to do, there's the opposite force of the law coming and bringing death and brokenness to us. And we see more and more as we obey, try to obey more and more, that we cannot measure up. The law strengthens its grip upon Upon us. It's only when we are freed from the grip of the law that we are able to experience this, this freedom from the law. So, so Paul says we were belonging to idols. We were children of wrath. We were under the power of the prince of darkness, of, of the power of the air. And even God's own law was bringing death into our life. Why? Well, God's law is good. It's, it's from God, obviously. But when a holy law meets 
broken sinners like us, it produces death within us. And so the, the law was not able to save us, to reconcile us. We needed to be free from the law in order to be able to be in right relationship with God again. And this leads us to our next point. Our adoption destroys our resumes with God. The law destroys our resumes with God. Now, note that here in Galatians, there's a relationship between the the person and the law and that the person's a slave and the the law is this master, this, this overseer. But when we become adopted, we're no longer worker and master or employee and master. Now we are son and father. We are, we are child and father. And this is a difference in relationship that is not based on our moral performance. Because when we lived under the law, our resume is what counted. As long as we got good marks on our resume and we could present that, then we were good. But if our resume did not meet the basic requirements of God's holiness, then we failed and we were crushed and we earned ourselves a wage of death. And so Paul says that here, adoption destroys any resume that we could ever bring before God. That is, we are adopted not because of our moral performance, our obedience, our our good works. God doesn't look at us and say, ah, man, they're trying really hard. I'm going to, to bring them into the family. No, adoption destroys any basis that we can claim to be made right with God. It's all by his grace and all by his mercy. Um, there's, a, there's a place in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And Nicodemus is a Bible expert. And not only that, he comes to Jesus and says, hey, I know that you're from God. I can, based on what I've seen, I know that you are truly from God. And so, so far, Nicodemus has a really great resume going on, right? He, he believes in the Bible. He believes in the one true God. Uh, not only that, but he recognizes that Jesus is sent from God. And so it seems like Nicodemus has everything going for him. And, and Jesus is going to say, wow, you're on the right track. You meet off the, the requirements on your resume here. But what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, you can't even begin to see the kingdom of God until you've been born again until you've been born again. What does it mean to be born again? Well, what resume does a baby have, right? Like there's nothing that the baby has done or, or failed to do that can uh, be presented, right? The baby just has no history. There's emptiness. And here's the, here's the application for us. If you come to God saying, here, God, I'm, 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 I'm going to dedicate my life to you. I'm going to be really serious about serving you now. Take this and accept me on this basis. Or you say, God, look at how sorry I am. Look at this, this, the sorrow that I have in my heart over my sin. Look at this and accept me on this basis. Jesus says, no, you must be born again. You must have a clean slate. There must be nothing that you can offer up to God before you can even begin to see his kingdom. And so that leads us to the second point. If it destroys our resumes, our adoption, then our adoption also ends our contract. Note that, yeah, this, this relationship with the law was the slave and master. And the idea was that uh, the, the servant here would be working and working and working. And if he did a good job, then the, the, the master would bestow his payments on him or blessings or provision or shelter and so on and so forth. But that is not the way with our relationship with God because of our adoption. That is, 
Once we do become Christians, we don't maintain our status. We don't maintain some kind of contract where God says, all right, if you keep up your end of the deal, I'll keep up my end of the deal. As long as both of us have this going, our contract will be good and I'll continue to bless you. So you do what you're supposed to do and I'll, I'll keep you as a son, right? And, and when we look at that, we say, well, that's really weird. Like who would go in? to adopt a child and say, all right, come home with us. Uh, so I want you to make sure you make your bed, clean up after yourself, uh, make sure you do your own laundry, and so on and so forth. And if you do all these things well, then we'll adopt you. Then we'll, get you, we'll keep you in our home. What, what kind of, that, that in real adoption, in the just common adoption, uh, it never happens where a parent would look at the child and say, hey, if you perform well enough, if you keep up your end of the contract, we'll keep you in our home. Adoption is not like that even with humans, much less with God himself. So it, it ends our, our, our attitude of thinking that we're obeying because we have to maintain some kind of uh, status with God. Uh, but next, it, it motivates us to hate sin. Our adoption motivates us to hate sin. As long as you're a worker, sin is viewed primarily as maybe a crime or illegal. If you steal from your boss, you have violated the law. And that is, that is true, and, it's, and sin is wrong on that account alone. But if you steal from your father, you've not only violated a law, you violated a relationship. So this idea that, okay, if I'm saved by grace, I don't need to worry about sin. I don't need to worry about being obedient. No, you've missed out on this new relationship you have with God. That your, your violation of the relationship when you sin is more horrific and an atrocity to your heart because not only have you violated the law, but now you've violated the relationship with one that you love and one who loves you. And as a result, Christians, even though we've been forgiven of our sins, we should be the most horrified by our sins when we give into it. And so this adoption changes our view because religious people who have this worker mentality say, okay, I don't want sin because that's going to look bad on my resume. But one who sees their adoption, sees their new identity as a son, as a child of God says, I don't want to sin, not because of what it does to me, but what it does to my father. That is, that is a change in mindset when it comes to our motivation for us hating our sin. Uh, some people only repent because they don't like the consequences of their sin. They say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, pornography or I'm, I'm treating my, my children poorly. And I can tell that that's really messing up my relationships with others. And so I hate having those things in my life, so I want to kill those sins. Well, that doesn't go deep enough. If you only hate your sin because it's making your life more inconvenient, then you haven't seen the depth of your sin against a holy God. And so adoption redirects our gaze from ourselves and our well-being and our comfort and directs it to God's majesty and his holiness and say, okay, I sin not because I'm concerned about how it's going to affect me. I sin, because, I sin not because I see that God has provided his son to me. And so our, our attitude towards sin is, is, becomes deeper and rich. And so, okay, we see some of these, these aspects, these benefits of our adoption. We don't have to 
put together some resume to impress God. We don't have to keep up uh, some, our, 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 some kind of contract with God after we've been saved. And we, can, we are able to fight sin from a motivation of love for God rather than a love for self. But the question then is, okay, how do we become adopted then? And, and the first thing is, well, we, we access it by faith. If we're, we're going to continue this metaphor of the resume, then we would say this, that, that biblical faith is that you have your resume. And on it, it says, fail to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Fail to love neighbor as oneself. That is, that is our resume apart from Christ. But Christ, he comes and he, he lives the life we should have lived. He, he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And, and what happens here is that the resumes get switched. That Jesus takes our resume that has earned us a wage of death, and he gives us his resume of obedience, of perfectly loving God and one another, and how does that switch happen? Well, it's by faith. It's by faith that we embrace the resume, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and Jesus takes our sin. And so this, this faith is the way that the resume, so to speak, gets swapped. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Biblical faith is relocating your hope and your trust from your own spiritual resume to the perfect resume of Jesus Christ. So that's how we, we enter into this adoption. But how does our adoption take place? If it's not our resume, if it's not our work, and if it's God's work, what exactly has God done in order to make adoption for us even possible? And so the eighth truth about our adoption is this is that our adoption is Trinitarian. Trinitarian. That is, God, as he has been revealed in the Bible, exists as one God, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three persons work together to make adoption possible for us, to, to bring our adoption to bear. Uh, let's, let's go ahead if you're in your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're in Galatians, it'll be the next book is Ephesians chapter 1. And, and one, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes this. And, and verses 3 through 14 is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work together for our adoption. And Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. What is Paul saying here? Saying that God was the one who first, God the Father declared our adoption. God was the one who declared it. He said, this is what is going to happen. And so we see that, that the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working together to make our adoption possible. And so our adoption, first number nine, is predestined by God the Father. It says that God chose us before the world 
began for us to be holy and blameless, that he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And, and this is the, this, as we've said today, this is the case for earthly adoptions as well. That when somebody says, hey, I'm going to adopt a child, I'm going to adopt this boy, I'm going to adopt this girl, uh, you really don't know how the child is going to turn out. We, you don't know if the child is going to be uh, an easy child to raise or a difficult child to raise. You don't know, but you still go in saying, all right, I'm going to adopt this child, and before they've done anything good or bad, I'm going to bring them to myself. And that's the same thing for us, is that God predestined us for adoption before we had done anything good or bad to earn or, or make ourselves more appealing for God to bring this adoption to us. And right here, we, we struggle a lot, I think, with this idea of predestination, of, of seeing how God can, can choose us uh, just totally irregardless to uh, our works or good deeds. And I think it's just about myself. I say, okay, Brett, when you first heard the gospel, why did you believe and the person who sat next to you didn't? And I remember because I was, I was in a Bible study and we were going through the gospel. And it was kind of weird because I was actually one of the leaders of that study. And as we went through the study, I heard the gospel and I responded in faith. And, and it's funny because during, during our group, I kind of, after we had gone through this material, I asked, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much is this gospel thing impacting you guys? And there's some, some people who kind of said, oh, you know, I'm like a, a 7 uh, or an 8. Um, uh, I'm a 2. I feel like this is, you know, they kind of rated how impacted they were by the gospel. And I looked back at this, okay, why was I a 10? And the guy next to me was like a 1 or a 2. Why, why, did, why did I embrace the gospel and the guy next to me didn't? Was it because uh, I was more righteous? I'm not going to say that to God on the, on the last day that, hey, God, uh, you know, I'm a Christian because I was more righteous than the guy next to me. Or will I say, you know, I just uh, was more spiritually sensitive than the guy next to me. I was the one who had better vision than the guy next to me and was able to see the importance of the gospel. I can't, I'm not going to take credit for that. Um, I, I might say that, you know, Based on circumstances in my life, I was more receptive to hearing the gospel. But am I going to take claim? Am I going to take uh, rights over my circumstances in my life? If I would have had my way, I definitely wouldn't have even wanted those circumstances to be happening to me. But because of God's work, uh, those circumstances prepared my heart, and his spirit was working in within me so that I came to believe. And so all I know is that I'm saved, I encountered and I received the gospel, not because of how great I am, but because of how great God is. And so if, if God has brought this to pass, all I can say is, I don't know why God, why God would show me grace. I know I don't deserve it, but God did it. And so he does whatever he pleases. I'm going to trust in him. So God declares this adoption. But second, uh, God the Father declares salvation, but it's God the Son who accomplishes this salvation. Um, Ephesians 1.7 says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus is the one who accomplished what the Father had declared. He died on a Roman cross to earn this salvation, to earn this adoption 
And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But number 11, our adoption is applied personally by God the Spirit. Our adoption is applied by God the Spirit. That is, before time began, God declared our adoption. About 2,000 years ago, Christ accomplished our adoption. But our adoption in, our, in us doesn't take place until the Holy Spirit brings it to bear upon us. Ephesians 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. So it's God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who personally brings this adoption to us as individuals. And so this, this idea of a seal, the Holy Spirit being a seal, it was a royal mark confirming the authority of what had been declared, that it was God's way of saying, I will bring this to pass to you personally by giving us the Spirit and the Spirit indwelling us personally. And so we see here that all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, work together to make our adoption real. And so God, the triune God, is, is, works together for this purpose. And what do we get as a result? What are, the, what are, what are some of the, the benefits of this adoption that we can tap into? Well, number 12, our adoption gives us access. You, do you know how much access a child has to the parent? Here's a, I want you guys to do a little experiment tonight. Maybe around 3 a.m., I want you to go to your boss's house and knock on the door and say, hey, can I get a glass of water? Go to your boss, go to a client, and knock on their door at 3 a.m. and say, hey, can I get a glass of water? Well, they're going to slam the door in your face because you do not have that level of access. But if, a, if your child comes up to you in the middle of the night, knocks on your door and says, daddy, can I have a glass of water? Mom, can I have a glass of water? The, the mother, the father says, yes, son, yes, dear. And that is the access that we have with God. We have this father-son uh, relationship with him. And so as a result, we have this incredible access. I want us to, to look and meditate on these realities of Christ. Uh, Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want us to just spend these maybe last few moments just meditating on his relationship with God the Father. And, and I want us to, to, to sink ourselves into this. In Matthew chapter 13, you have the baptism of Jesus. And something really interesting happens. As Jesus is, is baptized, uh, the Spirit descends upon him, and a voice from heaven, his heavenly Father, speaks and makes this declaration about Jesus. And here's, here's what Matthew 3 says. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I want us to, to break down this declaration to learn more about the sonship of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is that Jesus had an incredible status because of his sonship. Uh, God the Father says, this is my son. And immediately Jesus is given a status that no one else has ever enjoyed and that 
uh, a lot of his religious and political enemies wanted to kill him for, that, that Jesus was the son of God. And, and by being the son, he was given a status of association with the father. I remember uh, years ago when I was in church, I was probably like in sixth grade, and my dad helped out with the soundboard at the back of the church. And uh, one day my dad wasn't there, and the pastor came up to give the message, and the microphone started going crazy, right? And so my dad wasn't there, and so everyone in the congregation turned and looked at me to fix the problem. And I'm like, I don't know anything about soundboards. I'm in sixth grade. But everyone was looking at me assuming that, oh, his dad does this stuff, therefore he should know how to do this as well. And that's the case for us, or case, for, uh, sorry, for Jesus, that all that God had done was now being uh, available, that the status of, of God, the Father, the glory, the majesty was now being revealed in Jesus Christ, that Jesus had this incredible status. This is my son. There's this, that, that status there. But second, God, the Father says, whom I love. Not only did Jesus have status, but he also had intimacy. He had intimacy. This intimacy was just so incredible. This intimacy was so uh, powerful in Jesus' own life. His prayer life, his confidence, just, just everything about Jesus was just so spectacular because he had this personal relationship with his father that even his disciples were kind of freaked out about. They were prayer. They knew how to pray. His disciples knew how to pray. But then when they saw Jesus speak with his father, they're like, Jesus, can you show us how to pray? Can you teach us how to pray like you pray? They were, they, they were Jews. They, they were raised believing in the Bible, believing in God. They, they were, were constant in their prayers. But something about Jesus speaking with his father caused them to say, there's an intimacy there. There's, there's a connection that Jesus has. But not only that, God the Father says about Jesus, with him I am well pleased. That is, Jesus was given this, this authority or this approval. Jesus had incredible approval from the Father. And it's one thing to say, you know, Man, I love this guy. You know, this, my, my son is great. I love him. But it's another thing to say, I love him and I'm proud of him. I approve of him. Because, yeah, my son, I love him, but he's kind of, you know, he's always late for stuff. Uh, doesn't seem to be able to kind of figure out where he's at in life or whatever. But I still love him, right? You know, that's, that's praiseworthy. That's good. But there's something special about saying I love him and with him I am well pleased. I am giving him authority. I trust him to do what he's been called to do. And with him, I am well pleased. So with Jesus, just here in this, this interaction as baptism, Jesus has incredible status. He has incredible intimacy. And he has incredible approval. Now here's the truth. If we, by faith, are adopted by the work of Jesus then we have those things as well. We have a new status. We have an intimacy with God the Father, and we have his approval. Now, a lot of us, a lot of the reason why a lot of us struggle, why we sin, why we fail to love God, love others, is because we are not convinced of the status that we have, the intimacy with God that we have, 
or the approval with God that we have. Every sin fundamentally goes back to a sense of fear in our life or shame or guilt because we have not appropriated this new identity of adoption into our lives. Some of you are looking for status, whether it's the things you possess or being in the right circles. You think, as long as I have these things or as long as uh, I have these, these letters behind my name, then I'll really be someone. And, and as we said at the beginning, we're all, we all have things that we look to in order to give us status or give us intimacy or give us uh, approval and say, okay, I want status. I want status and I can find it in the things of this world. Some of you are looking for intimacy, saying, man, if I can just get this person to love me, if I can just be in this relationship, or man, if my parents were proud of me, or if my kids loved me, then I would really be someone. Then I would be important. If you had that intimacy with a family member or a lover, then, and then you would have this intimacy that your heart craves. Some of you are looking for approval, saying, I want to be seen as, as hardworking. I want to be seen as reliable. I want to be seen as someone who uh, is, is uh, trustworthy. And I want, I want to have others look at me and say, they're doing a good job. And, and your heart is, is craving that. And again, status, intimacy, and approval, those things by themselves, that's not wrong to want or have. But when we look to the things of this world to give us an ultimate sense of intimacy, an ultimate sense of status, an ultimate sense of approval, then we have made those things into idols in our life. And so what, what our adoption tells us is this, is that by faith in Jesus, you have a new status. You are, you are a son of God. You have a, a new intimacy that you can call God your father. And you have a new uh, approval not based on your work, but based on the perfect work of Jesus. And so God looks at you and says, okay, you are righteous. You are accepted. You are approved of. You don't need to prove yourself to me anymore. And the minute that we embrace that identity as adopted, our relationships are going to change. Because if we are looking to find ourselves in the status symbols of this world, then, then we're going to be cutting corners, we're going to be uh, taking shortcuts, maybe financially. If we are looking for intimacy uh, in, in earthly relationships, ultimate intimacy that our heart craves, then we're going to be blind when people abuse us. We're going to be blind to uh, how maybe their behavior isn't helping us to live the life that God calls us to live. If we look to uh, others for our approval, then when we have their approval, We'll feel great, but we'll give in to pride, saying, oh, I'm good enough to, you know, be seen as someone who's approved of and have this, these responsibilities. But then when we're not measuring up, we feel like a failure. We feel like dirt. We say, oh, man, how can I, how can I get out of bed today if, if I can't measure up? You haven't realized your adoption. You haven't realized your identity in Christ. Uh, I said that we'd go through... 30 of these things. So uh, I, want us, I want us to look at one uh, last aspect. Um, if, you're, if you've been coming here for a while, then you know that we read the ESV Bible, the English Standard Version. Uh, I think it's probably one of the most accurate translations of God's Word. But if some of you do struggle with reading your Bibles, not because 
you don't spend enough time, but maybe just the, the language is a little bit difficult at times to understand, I would recommend the New Living Translation. It's not as accurate as the ESV, but if, if reading has been a struggle for you, I would recommend getting that version. Ideally, you would get both, ESV and NLT and so on and so forth. But uh, one of the things that I think a lot of Christians and and even Bibles do, is that they can kind of change the language a little bit to try to make it uh, a little bit more modern sounding. And you see this in Galatians 4.7, where Paul writes, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, like the New Living Translation and other translations of the Bible, uh, they, they, they uh, change this first to say, uh, you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then an heir through God. Now, the problem with that is this, is that in, in Jewish and in Roman culture, only the son received an inheritance. Only the son got the property. And this is typically the way it worked out was that the eldest son got two-thirds of the property, and then the remaining son split the remaining one-third. If you were a daughter, if you were a, a, a girl, you didn't receive an inheritance. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you get the status of being a son. That is, you get the status, you get the inheritance that the son would get. And this creates this equality, makes us equal in Christ. That uh, doesn't matter if you're, if you're male or female, you get all the benefits of being a Christian. And in a lot of cultures at that time, uh, women were kind of subjugated to a secondary class. Their, their relationship with God or the gods was always mediated through a man, that they needed a husband, they needed a father. Their, their brothers were the, one, were the ones who kind of connected them to the divine, to, to God. But Paul says, no, women, if... If you put your faith in Jesus, you get the status of being a son. You don't need a husband. You don't need a father. You don't need a brother in order for you to have access to the riches of God himself. And, and Paul uh, says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. He says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Your ability to connect with God, your inheritance that is preserved in heaven is not dependent on whether you're uh, being a son or being, uh, being male or being female. The gospel in Christ, we all share in this inheritance. The last thing I, I do want to point out, and this is my point 30, so we're kind of skipping stuff, but it's all good. Point 30 is this. Our adoption had a price. Our adoption had a price. Um, you see this word in uh, Galatians or it, uh, in Ephesians and even in Romans chapter 8, which I would encourage you to read. But it's this word redemption. And redemption means to buy back. And the idea was that if you were a slave, if you were a servant, then you could have someone, have someone come and redeem you. That is, purchase you so that you were no longer under that master, under that slave, and you could be 
possibly even adopted into a brand new family. And so this, this idea of redemption was usually, okay, there's a pretty hefty price to pay. If the servant or slave had amassed some kind of debt, then the debt would need to be paid off, and then the servant would be free to leave the master's uh, service. Well, something in Matthew 27 is just absolutely incredible. When Jesus went to the cross for the first time, he spoke to God not as Father, but merely as God. Every time Jesus addresses God the Father, he's always saying, Father, Father, Father. But in Matthew 27, Jesus doesn't call him Father. He calls him God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Martin Luther, he read this verse and he felt like he needed to take some time to figure out what that meant. So he went into seclusion, spent a few days just meditating on what was happening here to Jesus. And he came back a few days later and says, said, I have no idea what is going on here. Uh, this is too profound for me. I don't understand how the eternal son of God and the eternal father could have this forsakenness here. I don't understand how that works. And it's, it's a mystery, but it's this, that Jesus gave up his status. Jesus gave up his intimacy. Jesus gave up his approval on the cross and he died so that those of us who had no status, no intimacy, and no approval could now experience the joy of those things through our faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not see his resume as the resume and the only resume you need to be reconciled with a pure and holy God, I would commend you to this. Put your faith in him now. Put your faith in that resume. Do not put your faith in your own resume, but trust in the grace, the provision of Jesus Christ and see what he did. Christians, if you struggle with fighting sin, if you struggle with loving others, if you struggle with being able to understand uh, as God, not merely as your master, but also as your father, meditate on your adoption and the cost, the cost of your adoption. What was that cost? It was the cost of Jesus Christ. Lose, giving up his status, giving up this intimacy, giving up this approval that he had with his father so that we who were outsiders could be brought in. If you want to press down deeper into your obedience, then see your new identity in your adoption. Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing that so often, so often, we can, we can view you just as a taskmaster, someone who just merely gives us orders. That is not who you are. But through faith in Christ, we have been brought into your family. And we obey not in order to earn your love, but because we already have it. And that is, that is the call of the gospel for us. But so often we revert back into a servant mentality, a contract, believing that it's our resume that continues to bring your love. Father, forgive us of this and change our hearts. Help us to see all the privileges, all the, the rights, all the things that have been granted to us by our adoption because Jesus gave up all those privileges on the cross for us. He gave up those son uh, rights that he had, his sonship, in order that we who were enemies and strangers and orphans could be adopted by you. Help us to respond appropriately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.